This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Let's go back in time to 1932 as Converse brings you historic footage of the legendary original Celtics with whom all great professional teams are compared. We have now taken over your radio. Richie Guerin is about to show you the most important step in getting past a man. It's the first one. An Oscar will inbound it. The men in green, the Milwaukee Bucks, that's Al Cinder against Bellamy. Hello and welcome back to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast at HarvardParoxysm.com. I am Jason Mann and uh, Rich couldn't make it uh, this time, but we are going to continue our uh, Russell Mania series with our uh, special guest, one of our favorite uh, frequent guests on the uh, program, uh, Curtis Harris of ProHoopsHistory.com. Uh, Curtis, welcome back to the show, sir. Hey, good to be with you, Jason. And uh, so we're going to kind of tackle um, a lot of things. We're going to kind of tackle the, the Celtics dynasty as a whole and looking at uh, kind of breaking down some of the things that made them an overall success, uh, you know, Bill Russell obviously being a uh, a major part of that, uh, you know, the the biggest factor in that clearly, I, I would say. Um, looking at see some of the other guys he played with, how they kind of fit together, how the Celtics dynasty sort of compares to some of the other short and long term dynasties in NBA history. Uh, the really how the Celtics defense really fueled. Um, uh, that dynasty and uh, some just just some some things of interest that we think will be um, kind of illuminate give give more depth on the um, on on Russell and the Celtics beyond just the eleven championships in uh, thirteen seasons. So, um, 
you wrote a piece recently at uh, Sporting News uh, looking at uh, at Russell and the Celtics' performance in uh, Game uh, 7s. And, and Russell was famously uh, 10-0 and in uh, Game 7s. And a, a lot of those came... Uh, you know, were from a very narrow margin and, and definitely could have gone a different way. We we kind of got into talked about that a little bit with Yago Colas on our last show, um, looking at the uh, Wilt Russell dynasty. But what what you know, um, what was kind of the what were kind of the main points of um, your article? In you know, what do you think of kind of the idea that the you know the Celtics dynasty, obviously incredibly impressive, and even if a couple of these had turned a different way, would still be impressive. But it, it is sort of a narrow margin in some respects. Yeah, like uh, the, the point I wanted to make with that article wasn't that like the Celtics weren't great because they clearly are great. Um, you know, 11 titles in 13 years kind of speaks for itself in that front. But um, I get, you know, having said that, I don't think it said enough about them, though, or like enough about the NBA of that period. Because if you just look from 57 to 69, you see like, you know, Celtics, 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 Celtics. You think that's all the NBA was. Uh, so trying to look at like, you know, those really close game sevens that they survived. I thought would help kind of shed some light just on how like hard the Celtics had to work to get all those titles. Like they didn't just push over everybody, uh, but also showing on the flip side there's a, that those other teams were really good. And sometimes the difference between them being champions or Boston being champions was a last second shot, a last second steal, uh, one, two, three, four points, that, which is not a lot of difference. You know, that's one or two shots over the course of the game. Uh, so it's not trying to detract from the Celtics or add to anybody else. I think it's just trying to like level out what really happened in that period uh, as best as I, best as I can do in one article. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and of course the you know the the Celtics are battling against some great teams and some great players um, early on the the rivalry with uh, the St. Louis Hawks and uh, Bob Pettit. Uh, dealing with Dolph Shays and the uh, Syracuse Nationals, um, and, uh, and and then what comes into the league with the Warriors and the uh, 76ers, and finally the Lakers uh, toward the end of his career, and obviously the, uh, the I, I think it was seven uh, finals that uh, the Celtics and Lakers um, faced in, and with the uh, Celtics winning each time, but you know a, a couple of those just being incredibly close. I, I think three of them actually came down to like. Uh, two or three points in, you know, of, of the final margin. I mean, just, just really, really close. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, 1962, uh, like this, that's the most famous one. Well, maybe the second most famous one. Uh, that's the one where Frank Selby like missed the last second shot in regulation. Uh, so if he had made that shot, LA would have beat Boston and won the title. Uh, then in, I think it was 66. Uh, this is the one I did not include in the article. Because uh, like seven's a nice number, like seven game seven escapes. Uh, but if I had done like an eighth one, uh, it'd have been '66 when uh, LA like made like a, I think it was something like an eight point comeback in the final minute of the game. Right. Uh, it was it was really furious. And they they really didn't have enough time to make the full comeback, but um, that was that one. They lost by two points, and then of course in '69 that was the one with uh, Wilt's knee problem and um, Coach Van Predikoff and him getting into their little feud. Uh, and, <laughs> Uh, Boston once again surviving by two points. So, uh, yeah, LA, like Elgin Baylor and Jerry West look a lot different if they were like, you know, three time NBA champions instead of, you know, perennial losers to the Celtics. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, it, and it came very, very close to that. Um, and Will is the same way. I mean, the, yep. the, the, the 68, uh, uh, the 69 finals, as you mentioned, the 68 uh, division finals where the 76ers were, you know, re- were probably the uh, stronger team in there. But the Celtics were able to to uh, come out of it or coming down from a 3-1 hole. 
um, 65 and uh, 62 as well. You know, extremely close. Uh, 65, very famous for, you know, Havlicek uh, stealing the ball, uh, batting it toward uh, Sam Jones at, at the end of there. But um, I mean, if you look at Russell's performance in these uh, Game 7s, I'll just kind of go through the stats a little bit. Um, game 7 of the 57 finals against the Hawks, he has 19 points, 32 rebounds. Um, game 7 in against the Nationals in, in 59, um, division finals, uh, 18 points, 32 rebounds. Um, that was kind of the last stand for uh, Dolph Shays and the Nationals being, you know, a uh, an elite team uh, before the move to... Um, Philly a few years later. Um, then in in 62 in the division finals, Russell had 19 points and 22 rebounds. Uh, 62 finals, Russell had 30 points and 40 rebounds, which is um, w- w- is pretty incredible. It, yeah, that, that one's absurd. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I think that – is that the finals record for rebounds in a game? Yeah, yeah. 40 is definitely the record for rebounds in a finals game. Okay. Um, and um, the 65 Eastern Division finals, 15 points, 29 rebounds. Uh, the uh, in the '66 finals, uh, 25 points. I'm not sure if we have rebounds for uh, for that. At least not on the official record. Um, in '68 Eastern Division finals, this is Russell's second to last season. 12 points, 26 rebounds, five assists. The the scoring was uh, obviously never quite his strong suit, but was you know starting to go down his last couple seasons. And in uh, the '69 finals, six points, 21 rebounds, six assists. So still getting still getting those boards and still doing enough to. Um, to make it um, work. And, um, I, you know, I, I, obviously the Celtics were a, um, you know, Russell was, was the, was the important part of that. Uh, the, the most important part of, um, of that machine, but they really were just incredibly well put together, um, particularly defensively. And um, what do you think the, the, the keys were to kind of, um, as far as the pieces kind of complementing each other and for them to kind of be able to sustain that success over that length of a period of time. These are fast facts. Um, like Russell, Russell was absolutely like the key on the defensive side, uh, but they did have some other players who were, you know, fantastic deep defenders. Uh, like in the early years, uh, Jim Loskatoff, uh, good defender, but even better enforcer. So, uh, he would like kind of add the muscle to kind of rough people up. Uh, then they added uh, Satch Sanders, who was absolutely a really great defensive player. Uh, if they had like all defensive teams back then, he probably would have been on the first and second team every single year for his whole career until the early seventies. Um, and then Sam Jones, obviously known for his offense, but he was a really good defensive player. Uh, John Havlicek, another good defensive player. So you can see how like these, uh, they had like these rangy, uh, at small forward and shooting guard, but also at power forward, they usually get like a kind of a burly guy. Um, and those guys really had room to flourish because Russell was able to, you know, cover up for so many mistakes. So say if Hondo or Sam Jones like goes for the steal in the passing lane and they miss it, you know, they have margin for error because Russell's going to be behind them cleaning up the mess by blocking a shot or intimidating the, the opponent who gets to the basket. Yeah. So, you know, good defenders all around on the team for the most part, but with Russell's ability just to clean up the mistakes, it really just amped up their ability to play uh, kind of frenetic, hectic defense that would throw the, off, the opposing offense off balance. Um, and that's really where their whole their whole game started from was Russell controlling the boards and the glass. And then on the offensive end, it all just uh, dovetailed off of that. Yeah, and of course Russell being really the first in uh, in the NBA or really probably at all levels to be able to use the 
use the block shot as the, as a weapon the way that he did um with the uh with, with before that sort of the conventional wisdom in basketball of being you didn't you don't leave your feet on defense or you can get blown by but uh, you know him having the ability to sort of understand the power of it and experiment with it and experiment with jumping and you know understanding um move, his movements and his opponent's movements and um and, and and of course having the, just the incredible physical ability to be able to jump that high and to be able and having that timing and and that skill that all just worked out for him to um be that incredible defender and then um coach Red Auerbach um understanding how um Russell could really fit in um to that and you know and into you know power what had sort of been a you know a pretty good team through the mid 50s but always kind of a team that you know was would score a lot of high point totals but you know never really had much ability to stop people and you know would would generally lose um a lot of times to Syracuse in you yep. know the in the playoffs so one thing that stands out to me is just how much better the Celtics were defensively compared to uh, the rest of the league. They they led the NBA in uh, defensive rating uh, twelve of thirteen seasons. The only in Russell's career, the only season they did not was the uh, was sixty seven, the year that the seventy sixers were uh, historically great uh, sixty eight win team, uh, which was the record at the time. Um, they on average had a. Um, a like 7.3 better defensive rating than the uh than the league average so teams weren't even like close to um them other than the last the the last couple seasons with the 76ers it really was not a um you know a close margin if you look at um the Celtics averaged a a defensive rating of 86.4 during Russell's uh, tenure and um the second place finisher was an average of about 4.2 worse than the Celtics in defensive rating. Um, Some of the peak years, they were 0.65 or 6.5, excuse me, better than the Syracuse nationals in 62, Uh, 7.6 better than the Hawks in 65. um, And and generally, you know, four or above most of those seasons. And if you compare that to the, like the last five years, um, the Warriors were only um, 0.6 better than the Spurs. The Pacers were 1.2 better than the Bulls in 2014. In 2013, the Pacers were 0.5 better than the Grizzlies. And t- in 2012, the Celtics were 0.1 better than the uh, Bulls. And in 11, the Celtics were tied with the Bulls. So these are you know, very tight margins compared to um, you know what the uh, Celtics were averaging, m- much less what they were at their at their best. So. You you would have maybe expect with more teams um, the distribution to be a little bit tighter, but I still think just the the level in which the Celtics were ahead of everybody else in defense really I think does stand out when you look at it that way. Again, you know, it speaks to mostly Russell's ability. Well, I'll say mostly, but it speaks a lot to Russell's ability. Um, just how uh, groundbreaking he was, how he played defense because. Uh, you know, we forget like today's shot blocking is such a an accepted part of the game. And how you block the shots, like you know, we need rim protectors. Like you jump up and swap the shot. Like today, that's pretty obvious. But you know, in 1956 and 57, when he first came to the NBA, uh, you know, opponents really didn't have to account for that. Like they had probably played their whole basketball careers, uh, you know, high school, college, pro to that point, without having anybody who could jump up and like slap their shot back at them like that. Um, 
So, you know, it take it, you know, probably took the offenses, you know, we see like the defensive numbers, like it took them like probably almost a decade to kind of really adjust to what Russell was doing. Um, and then of course you also had Will Chamberlain doing a similar thing, not to the degree that Russell was, but still doing a similar thing. Uh, then Nate Thurman coming along too. So when you started getting these other shot blockers, I think it kind of symbolizes or uh, shows that the shot blocker was uh, expanding in the NBA, but also people's reactions to them were also starting to grow. Like they kind of, that environment was out there basically. They had started to evolve to it. So I think that's why you saw the Celtics kind of come back to the pack toward the end of their run, which is a factor of age, but also think it's a factor of the teams kind of learning how to play Russell a little bit better. Yeah. Um, and then being able to adjust to that. But, uh, but overall, like it just shows how revolutionary he was and how he controlled the defense and how good the Celtics were um, all around with, um, you know, a Honda and Sam Jones, I mentioned, but also forgot Casey Jones too, another great oh, defender yeah, absolutely. To, to help out with that. So um, it wasn't just Russell, but he was clearly like the, the linchpin of all that. Yeah. And, you know, we kind of have the, obviously the modern understanding of what value a ring, a rim protector can, it can have, you know, especially in the league today. And I, and I think that, um, you know, Russell absolutely fits that to a T not, not just with his ability to jump and block shots, but his ability to rotate and ability to cover yep. mistakes as, as you were talking about the, uh, the Celtics famously had what they called a hay bill defense where, you know, basically if, 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 if the guy got beat, you know, he, he would yell, Hey Bill and have Bill cover the mistake. So, um, so, so I, yeah, um, that is, you know, just, just a remarkable difference, I think, and really does give, uh, D- does stand out uh, now the Celtics not particularly a uh, a strong offense um and you know this is during a time in which the league in general was getting better at offense the shooting percentages were going way up partly because of the popularity of the jump shot and just the ability for more for more um players to do it and to do it well and um you know maybe, maybe a smarter understanding of, of of shot taking and um and, and just scoring was going crazy, but a lot of that, of course, was was pace related as opposed to um, better shooting. But it still was a part of it. So, so all this defense is coming in within the context of a league that is exploding offensively. Um, but the Celtics, um, although obviously they did did score many more points as the as things changed, and they did sort of lead the drive in the increase in pace with. Um, you know, there with with Russell being able to his defense sort of feeding into the uh, fast break and um, in his passing as well, uh, kind of feeding into more you know, transition opportunities and um, you know, kind of leading the league in uh, that trend. Obviously, you know, things that um, are successful are often copied, um, but they did not rate well offensively. Um, they were last in the league for three seasons during that time, and the only time they were in the uh, top half in offensive rating was once in. Um, in uh, 19 uh, i believe in 64 so um so yeah it, it wasn't offense that was feeling it but again the defense was so much tremendously better than the uh than the rest of the league that the the, the lack of offense uh you know wasn't important well i, I will kind of look at it as um their defense like this is kind of like a backwards way how they did it, but like their defense created more possessions for them on, on their offense. Sure. Uh, so they could like, obviously they, they had talented offensive players, but you know, relative to the other teams in the league, they didn't have virtuosos like Elgin Baylor or Oscar Robertson who could, you know, manufacture offense on like on a dime. Yeah. Um, but with their defensive ability, I think they gave them like the confidence that, all right, you know, yes, like we might, 
we can run out, take more shots than the other team and be confident that on the defensive side, we'll stop from scoring and still be able to get back and have another shot, another crack at scoring on offense. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the first like eight or nine years of their dynasty, like 57 through 65 or so, uh, they were like the top team in pace in the NBA. So you're talking about like the fastest paced era we can calculate. But the Celtics were the fastest paced team in the fastest paced era. And that was all driven by their defensive effort. Um, and looking at it, like I went through and found like their leading scores uh, from 57 through 69. And uh, Bill Sharman led them for three seasons. Tom Heinsohn led them from th- for three seasons. Sam Jones led them for five years. And John Havlicek for two years. So... Looking at it over the course of 13 years, they had one, two, three, five different leading scores on the team. Yeah, which is really odd for like a, a dynasty of that of that way. Um, and then also the we talk about the fast pace they had, but the top points per game they had on the team from an individual was Sam Jones in the 1965 with 25.9 points per game. Yeah, so you're talking about the team with the fastest paced offense or the fastest pace in the fastest paced era, but their top score for the whole 13 years was Sam Jones with 26 points. Uh, and every other year, the guys are floating like at 21 or 22 points per game leading the team. So it was really like a really spread out offense. No one guy was dominating the ball. They were always have like five, six or seven players in double figures on the squad. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a really different mold in how we've come – accustomed to like uh, a team winning a championship because for the most part these last 25 years especially like the team who's won the championship has had a guy scoring you know 28 29 30 points a game but the Celtics were a complete opposite of that even when they were playing in the fastest paced era in basketball history mm-hmm. yeah um, I mean it really does seem very similar to kind of what the Spurs have done for the last 16 17 years yeah. uh, I mean yeah it, yeah them and the Pistons I guess are like the exceptions to the, like the and the Celtics that one year. But yeah, for the most part, it's like the 30-point score leading a team to a title. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As far as like, yeah, there have been a, a few instances of, um, you know, a success in a, a year or two here. But as far as, yeah, as far as um, continued success, continued um, over a long period of time, it really does seem like the the Spurs culture and philosophy of the past you know, 16, 17 years is, is the most similar thing that, um, you, you know, that I can think of in NBA history in terms of um, just not necessarily have it being dominant by one player, at least on offense. I mean, Duncan in his peak years, you know, clearly did, did have that, but, um, but it's been a long time since he's really been, you know, like a, um, you know, a, a low to mid 20 scorer, and, you know, they've, they've always kind of had the share the burden. No one's really ever had, you know, an immensely high usage rate there that I can think of um, other than Duncan and a few of the peak years, probably. Um, and also, you know, looking for complimentary players without egos is Popovich always called, kind of called it, like, you know, guys who are over themselves. And I, I, I really do think there are some, um, there are some really good parallels kind of between the, the two cultures and obviously the success that, um, that both teams have had. Yep. And yeah, I, I guess, um, uh, Rich ran, uh, by the way, Rich has run, uh, all these great stats are uh, from Rich, who we, of course we know is, uh, is great at putting together uh, numbers, but, um, the, uh, if we're kind of comparing, uh, the Celtics, uh, their, their winning percentage and their SRS compared to some of the other uh, short-term and long-term dynasties in NBA history. Uh, it, it, tough to conclude much from this, but it's just kind of fun to uh, to, to kind of compare them. If um, you compare them to the 49 through 54 Lakers, um, 
the uh, the Lakers had a 68% winning percentage and a 5.56 SRS, so both are a little bit worse than the uh, Celtics. The uh, 80 through 91 Lakers had a 72 um, 72% winning percentage and um, a 5.64 uh, SRS. And of course, if you uh, compare the um, the 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 Celtics of course won 11 championships in 13 years made 12 finals and and they won 26 series during that time the um there were a lot fewer teams so there were a lot fewer playoff series during that period um the Lakers won five rings in 12 seasons made nine finals and won um 32 series um the uh the 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 Bird Celtics of 81 through 87 actually won um uh, they won 75% of their games and had a 6.61 SRS, which is uh, pretty strong. Um, three titles in there as well. Um, the 91 through 98 Bulls um, had a 74% winning percentage and a 7.72 SRS, which is the strongest of uh, any of these teams. Uh, winning, of course, six rings in eight seasons, making six finals, and, and w- winning 26 series, which I thought was kind of interesting that they won the same number of series as the uh, Celtics did. Um and then the 2000 to 2004 Lakers, who won three titles in four seasons, had 70% winning percentage, almost the same as the uh, Celtics, and had a 5.27 SRS, which is uh, the lowest of uh, any of these. The the Spurs uh, from 99 to 2000 through 2014, which was their, their last finals win in appearance, uh, 71%, uh, 6.54 SRS, um, five rings in 16 seasons, made six finals and won 33 series. And then the uh, 2011 through 2014 Heat, 72% uh, winning percentage, a 5.92 um, SRS, and um, and then uh, two rings, four finals appearances. Uh, and win percentage-wise, the Celtics are only better than the Mike and Lakers. The, the winning percentage generally has kind of gone up as those dynasties have um, gone through. Um, and SRS-wise, only the uh, Bird Celtics, Bulls, and Spurs rate better. So they're sort of in the middle. But if you look, looking, kind of comparing, I think the 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 better apples-to-apples comparison or the, the, the closest that you can possibly come, and there's so many differences, I think probably the, the Magic Johnson Lakers, the Jordan Bulls, and the Duncan Spurs are kind of the the most comparable in terms of length of their run and accomplishments over a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he ran through it like the, <laughs> I mean the you know the Spurs, Celtics at '80s version and the '80s Lakers, man, I guess '90s Bulls. How could I throw them into? Yeah, sure. those like the only teams that can compare in terms of length of time that they had and how successful they were over that period. So sure, yeah, um, yeah, and I and I um. Yeah, and again, it, you know, it's such a different NBA, obviously, and um, and you know, no one's come close to eleven in, in thirteen. Obviously, under different conditions than modern teams with more playoff rounds and more teams have to deal with. But um, you know, yeah, not meant to take away from anybody or just just sort of give like an overall um context of um of the accomplishments or just kind of give some interesting totals. So, so you had some, um, you had some, uh, Bill Russell specific stats that you, uh, that, that you wanted to share. What were some of those? Uh, well, let's see, let me get my paper out. Sure. Um, all right. So like Bill Russell, and also this is kind of like, uh, player specific. So Russell, I also got a couple more on some other players, but with Russell, um, people often kind of, this, I'm sure this is a point Yago has made. I hadn't listened to your podcast with him yet. Uh, unfortunate admission. Uh, I'll get to it soon. But 
Now, the thing with Russell is like, you know, people naturally look at how great his defense was and then assume that he wasn't a good offensive player. Um, and I think the mistake there comes when they look at his field goal percentage and they're like, oh, he shot like 44% for his career, which obviously is not great for a center these days. But uh, when he retired in 1969, his career field goal percentage of 44%, that was 39th all time. And there was only three players that had shot over 50% for their careers to that point. So given the context of his era, like his shooting percentage wasn't great, but it also wasn't bad. It was just kind of like a little bit above average for what was of the period. Um, but even more importantly than that, it wasn't necessarily like his scoring. Although we see he could do big scoring games, like those 30 points in game sevens that he would have. Um, but his passing, I think, is really what's gone overlooked for so many years. Um, besides the people who like really take time to look at it, but like just a kind of general look at Russell is like, he blocked the shots. He got the rebounds and then other guys did, did the scoring, but uh, it's not acknowledged enough that he was the one that was often passing and actually controlling the offense, especially after Bob Cousy retired uh, for the Celtics. And so um, his assist, assist per game total uh, was 4.3 for his career. Uh, that is still second all time for centers and um, only Will Chamberlain's ahead of him with 4.5. So uh, this is a guy who was really more than just a, the block shot, the guy who blocked the shots, who could get the rebounds. He was really a, a really savvy, knowledgeable, uh, competent offensive player, more than competent. Like he was a great passer. Um, didn't do like behind the back stuff, but he could hit the cutters. He could push it on the break. Um, like he just made the timely right pass, a good bounce pass to get a guy. Like you don't have to do the behind the back stuff to make a good pass. And Russell was just fantastic at finding the open teammates on offense. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's with him. Um, and then there's other, other stats I found, uh, my Sam Jones stats. I love Sam Jones. And this is a dude who just, unfortunately gets like, uh, I, I use the word overlook a lot, but he gets overlooked too. Um, cause like you, the shooting guards from the sixties, it's like Jerry West. Uh, he's the, the paragon of it. Um, and then also people know, remember Oscar Robertson, not a shooting guard, but point guard, but he's the other guard from the sixties. Uh, but Sam Jones was a dude who could have done, I think, more in his career, but his personality just dictated that he didn't like stepping up and being the man all the time. Uh, Bill Russell admitted as much. I remember some books I've read on it. Um, and Russell was quoted as saying stuff like, you know, he would come up to Sam Jones and tell him, like, you know, you know, hey, Sam, like you can take more of a load on offense. Like, you don't have to score just 22 points a game every year. But Sam Jones would like just shirk back and be like, no, I don't want that. I just want to flow within the offense. I don't want to try to score 30 points a game. He was comfortable scoring 20 points a game. But then during playoff time, for whatever reason, when it got to the game six or the game seven, he would just escalate his scoring. Like, um, let's see what I got here. So from 1962 to 1965, regular season, Sam Jones averaged 21 points. And the playoffs, he then averaged 24 points. And then in elimination games, he averaged 26 points. So when the pressure's getting up, he decides, like, all right, now it's time for me to step in and actually do my thing and score the points that my team needs. Um, and then this is 1966 through 69. He's still at 21 points in the regular season, 22 points in the postseason, and then 23 points in elimination games. So And he's in his mid-30s at this point. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, he's, like, 34. That's another thing. Like, he didn't get started until he was older. Like, um, I think his rookie year, he was 25 or 26 years old. Mm -hmm. And then he didn't become a starter until, like, his fourth year. So I think he was uh, maybe pushed up to him. Maybe he started at 24. So I think he became a starter at age, like, 28 or 29 when Bill Sharman retired. 
So this is a guy that got a late start in his career, uh, but he was excellent throughout the, his whole career uh, after he got the starting job. And um, his final game was that game seven in 1969. Like that was Russell's final game, but that was also Jones's final game. And he scored 24 points, shot 10 for 16 from the field, and made all four of his foul shots. So he's like 35, 36 years old at that point. He's, you know, shooting 10 for 16, getting 24 points in a game seven. So uh, that was a guy that was absolutely clutch, uh, deserves a lot of credit for the Celtics getting those championships. Uh, Russell's got the 11 rings, but Sam Jones has got 10 of them too. So he's the only other dude with double-digit ring counts. Right. Uh, Yeah, I think that – you know, I, I wonder if he actually had stood up and tried to like do more on offense, if that would have been a little bit disruptive for what the Celtics are doing. Cause I, I you know, it just, it seemed like they were such, you know, it, it was so, so egalitarian there in, in terms of, you know, offensive role that if one guy had tried to do more, you know, would that have been a disruptive effect on, you know, on, on the whole team? You know, it, it's an interesting yeah. question. Yeah. I, I think it's a good thought, like, especially during a regular season. Um, I think come playoff time, as we saw, like, the guys would kind of defer to Sam because, like, you know, sure. I mentioned earlier how they didn't have, like, an offensive, uh, like, savant, really, on offense. Um, but Sam Jones really, in the playoff time, he decided to become the savant. Like, he had, you know, he had 51 points in a elimination game to get rid of the Knicks in 1967, scored 51 points against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, had, like, 37 points to save Boston from getting eliminated another year. Had like 47 against the Royals one year against Oscar Robertson. I think Oscar had like 51 in that game. Um, so Sam, like he could clearly, I think he could score like 28, 30 points, especially in that era. Like the the amount of shots he could have got his hands on. But I think it's a very good point that he might have realized that you know maybe I could get 25 to 30 points a game without a problem, but maybe that would cause a problem for the team as a whole because then it kind of throws the offense out of whack, and if guys don't feel like like everybody's getting the appropriate amount of touches. We're not the egalitarian team with six or seven players in double figures, maybe just five players in double figures. Maybe that throws off their defensive effort. And then Russell's a great defender, but he can't, you know, he can't clean up every mistake. So if guys aren't giving her all on defense, maybe that throws that off. And if the defense goes, the whole thing is gone. Uh, Cause that was the, that was their bread and butter was the defense. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Sam Jones, like on a, on a per minute basis was, you know, just, you know, a notch below what Oscar and West were doing production wise. It was just that, you know, he played fewer minutes, you know, even later in his career, I I don't think he ever quite had the full load regularly that, you know, the, the, the 40 minutes a game, he was more of a, you know, a, a, a low 30 minute a game type player. And obviously, as you mentioned, he was on the bench for the first year of his career behind, um, Bill Sharman. That was an, another special thing that the um, that the Celtics did. Um, they were able to kind of um, you, you ha- the, the players were willing to um, as they got older, they were willing to mentor the younger players and kind of get them ready to for um, you know to, to kind of fill their role. I mean that happened with um, with Sharman and Sam Jones. Um, it happened with uh, uh, Frank Ramsey and John Havlicek. Um, you know, it, yeah. it, it happened in a number of circumstances. Um, uh, you know, Arnie Risen when um, when Bill yeah, Russell, when Russell came Russell in, first got there. yeah. Yep. Um, so I mean, that really um, you know was was a, another special thing that kind of put the uh, the Celtics apart from I mean, not not just any team in that era, but but almost any team in history. I mean, that that's a it's a pretty strong culture to be able to. Um, you know, to, to not have the egos get uh, in the way on those things. Yeah. Well, 
it worked on a number of fronts. Like you, like we mentioned, like the older guys mentoring the younger players um, into like the the positions that they should assume. Um, but a lot of those guys were like you know castaways and retreads too. So like a lot of them, Boston was like the team that picked them up from like a no name college or from the scrap heap in the NBA, and they kind of felt like a I won't say like too strong because like it is sports, it is a business still, but like. As far as you can in that atmosphere, they would feel like a, a fierce loyalty um, to themselves, to their teammates, to the franchise. Um, look at guys like Larry Siegfried uh, or Don Nelson uh, in the later years. Like these are guys that no other franchise really took a chance on, or they had taken a chance. Like you know, say like you know you're not good enough, so we're cutting you. And like Don Nelson, that's a really great one where um, he played for the Lakers, I think, for maybe a season or two, definitely one season, but maybe two of them, and they cut him like in things 64 or 65 and then he goes to the Celtics and he plays for the Celtics through like 1976 and um he hits huge shots for the Celtics and like he was like the the next six man off the bench like after Havlicek got in the starting lineup Don Nelson was the next guy who would take the role of six man and just come in and pump in points for him mm-hmm. um and the old veterans too like the guys who were desperate for a ring like they would come in and just be like just thankful that they had a chance to play for a good team like um uh, Andy Phillip in the very first title year, he was a great point guard from the fifties, uh, but got his ring with the Celtics. Um, mentioned Arnie Risen, he already had a ring, but got his second one with the Celtics. Uh, Carl Braun, great shooting guard with the Knicks in the fifties and sixties. Uh, he got a ring with the Celtics finally because the Knicks sucked uh, for the late fifties. Uh, unfortunately for him, uh, another dude, Clyde Lavelle, uh, meanest elbows in the world, and he just passed away uh, last week, but. Uh, he's another guy who played for the Celtics for a couple of years, had been around the NBA, got himself a couple of championship rings in his final couple of years. So they had a way of balancing like the the, the top draft picks like Russell and Havlicek with finding uh, lesser known college players like um, Sam Jones, for example, or Casey Jones as well. But also finding the elder statesmen like Clyde Lavellet and Carl Braun and then also getting the guys like Don Nelson off the scrap heap. So you had a lot of guys who had a lot of chips on their shoulders and would be willing to play that kind of hard-nosed defensive style because they were there trying to prove that they belonged in the NBA, I think. Yeah, and that reminds me, that's another kind of comparison to the Spurs where, you know, they add like a Boris Diaw or they add, you know, kind of a, a cast-off who's not quite in shape or, you know, just just isn't quite in the uh, the right situation. And then, it, you know, it completely clicks and they, and they fit, you know, obviously you have to find the guy who kind of fits in the culture but I, I imagine like adding a piece like that every year or two kind of um uh, you, you know adds a little bit of like a challenge or a little bit of a variety yeah. you know like when you have that group together too much you can you know get sick of each other or you know or, or there, there can be issues I mean that's obviously a difficult thing to manage because you know you, you get the wrong personality you, you create a problem but um you know, they basically hit on almost every single um time to do that and obviously it's it's more difficult to uh, make transactions in uh in the 60s uh, than it is today um uh you know teams will hold on to their good players they can hold on to them as, as long as they want to um it, the, the the one of the crazy things is that uh, that i had a hard time believing one of the celtics books that i uh uh, read uh, leading into this there was only one trade uh d- during the Russell era the Celtics made it was um uh, Mel Counts for Bailey Howell which yep. it, it, which is which is pretty amazing um and Albrecht and was uh, go ahead th- th- that's another one where like the Baltimore Bullets 
thought Bailey Howe was like overpriced and not worth it at that point in his career because they had uh, Gus Johnson. I think they still had Walt Bellamy at that point. Mm-hmm. So they're like, you know, we got these other two front court players. Why do we need Bailey Howe? And like Bailey Howe got traded to Boston and without him, they don't win those final two championships. So that's another example of them. Like, you know, even Dester won trade, but then their one trade, they still got like a veteran forward who was kind of discounted and shuffled out of the ta- of the team he was on before. Uh, so really, you know, another guy who had something to prove, I guess. Um, they had a way of finding that. Yeah, I, I thought it was funny. I think it was in King of the Court where um, Auerbach complains that, um, you know, they, they, they can't um, – they, they, can't do anything about draft pick because they're always picking eighth, which I, yep. <laughs> given, <laughs> given the, the that what that would be now is is, is kind of funny, but uh, and and obviously they you know they hit on Havlicek. Although I think Havlicek was really like the last one they really landed. I mean, pretty much everyone else after that, as the team got older, it was more like you know the, the, the castoffs and the you know those guys. They didn't have a lot of injection of really good young talent until after um, Russell was gone. Yeah, I mean, hey, that speaks to our backs drafting, though. Like, hell, they only had one bad year after Russell retired because they drafted JoJo White and then got Dave Cowens. So they yeah. get on the draft picks. Yeah, I, yeah, and, and yeah, I mean, you know, our back is a GM. We could really, I mean, because you know, they in the seventies and again in the eighties, um, they really, uh, obviously were able to, um, rebuild the team through, uh, the draft and through savvy trades. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, so looking at, um, the, we've talked about some of them, but the, the, the main teammates that, uh, Russell, um, played with, uh, well, before that, I, I did a, a search looking at everyone who played with, uh, Russell, um, during that time and um win shares gives russell more credit than any other two players combined um during russell's time with the celtics if you um you know going by that metric he had 163.5 win shares the next two are sam jones with 92.3 and time tom, tom heinson with um 60 that is obviously less than what uh russell did so that um is one metric uh you know one um one metric that you know production wise um shows russell's value to uh the team it, it, just another way to illustrate that um who, the guys who played the most minutes with um russell were uh sam jones had by the uh by far the most with uh, more than twenty four thousand minutes uh Tom Heinsohn had a uh, 19,000 minutes. Uh, Satch Sanders had 18,000. Uh, John Havlicek had uh, 17,800. Um, Casey Jones had 17,000. And Bob Cousy had uh, more than uh, than 16,000. Um, and looking at, if you, if you look at, like, on a, on a per-minute basis, Winchester for 48, his most effective uh, teammates, uh, I, honestly, like a lot of the older role players, ended up uh, filling that role. Uh, Bailey Howell had over... Uh, a point two oh four uh, win shares during his time with the Celtics. Um, uh, Bill Sharman, one of the great uh, shooting guards, who we really haven't talked about yet, but we'll have to talk a little bit about. Um, uh, at point one eight four, Sam Jones right behind him at point one eight two, and Don Nelson at point one seven one. Frank Ramsey at point one six zero. Who we haven't talked about much yet. So, um, so yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the um, the, the key players that um, uh, that. Uh, uh, Russell played with. Uh, maybe we'll start with um, with, with Tommy Heinsohn. He was definitely quite a character, and obviously has been uh, affiliated with the, with the Celtics for you know more than sixty years now. Yeah, he's been there forever. Yeah, yeah. God, yeah. Like this fall will be sixty yeah, right. years. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The guy was. I, I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but 
this whole story of how Russell, like, you know, told Tom Heinz that, like, that Rookie of the Year award was really Russell's. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> Russell missed, like, the first couple of months because he was playing in the Olympics. But, um, yeah, Tom Heinsohn, like, uh, that, that first game seven they had against the Hawks. Um, double overtime, 125-123, Boston wins. Uh, Tom Heinsohn, he was the hero of that game. Uh, it's like, this is one of the obscured rookie performances in NBA history. Like, people remember Magic Johnson. Like, Magic had a hell of a game, too. So I'm not trying to say, like, Magic wasn't great. But Magic had that game in, against the Sixers in 1980. And everybody's like, that is like the, the – he's just, just a rookie, and he put up, like, 40 and 12 and all that. Uh, Tom Heinsohn had 37 points and 23 rebounds against the Hawks as a rookie in that game seven. And Russell had 19 to 32 as a rookie in that game. So uh, Heinsohn was just a gunner. He came in, was getting buckets right from the get-go. Um, God, when I wrote something about him a few years ago, like I did a, a calculation of like shots per minute. And if I remember right, only Will Chamberlain, obviously, and Elgin Baylor and... I think that might have been it. I think those are the only two players who took more shots per minute than Tom Heinsohn, like from 1957 through 1965 when he retired. Mm -hmm. So Tommy's role was to get in there, get some shots, get some rebounds while he was at it, but mostly just to get some shots up, score some points. Uh, he didn't play more than, I think, like 32 minutes a game in any one season. So yeah. uh, uh, he, his conditioning was not the best, yes. to say the least. He was a chronic smoker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a chronic smoker, not, the, not always in the best shape, but um, – yeah. Uh, obviously effective when he was in there and, and he was um you know one of the early players union presidents that yeah. were um and, and he was the players union president when uh the players took a stand during um one of the early all-star games um yeah the 64 game yeah and were able to get a um were able to get concessions from the commissioner to start a pension and and and, and some other things that were really key in giving the players association uh players union more strength and eventually leading to you know the uh, benefits of free agency and other things that um you know have led to a much more successful life for uh, for athletes you know now that i think about it i'm glad you brought that up uh, that might go back to what we were talking about earlier why the players are so happy to be in boston uh for the most part like the celtics were the hotbed of like union activism in the nba because mm -hmm. bob Cousy founded the players association uh then heinzen was the second president after him and of course you had russell right up in there too and sat sanders he was no he was no dummy either like he was all up on the he went to nyu so he he's a smart fellow there so like they're all attuned to like kind of the labor abuses that were going on in the period um and boston's owner uh walter brown he was probably the most um what's the word like progressive maybe yeah, like, yeah, progressive, um, sympathetic owner to the players' cause at that point, which is why he was kind of embarrassed in 64 because, like, that game was in Boston. Uh, so he, like, went to Heinz and was like, like, how dare you, like, stage the strike on my home court? Like, I've been the best person to all you guys. Like, I'm not treating you as bad as the other owners. And Heinz had to kind of apologize to him saying, like, you know, Walter, this isn't about you. This is about the other owners who aren't being as good as you on this front. Uh, but they did have one of the best owners, like probably the best owner when it came to player relations in that period. So that couldn't have hurt uh, players like being willing to go to Boston and play as hard as they did. Yeah. And, and I believe he I believe they had the generally had the highest salary as well um, for, uh, for most of the of um, Russell's run. And um, Russell was generally the, the highest paid player in the league or Chamberlain, depending on the uh, on the situation. But um, yeah, yeah, that's hard to figure out. They didn't. 
they never accurately publicized uh, that, right that, that <laughs> so yes I, I i remember one of the books that i read reported that as well yeah uh, but either way i, I mean I, I i probably fair to say that he was on the higher end of um of that that i'm sure that was a pretty good motivation to go to boston as as well so um yeah um and how about uh how about john havlicek oh hondo um the guy whose motor just never stopped. Um, his final game, this is, I'll take it completely away from the 60s. Uh, his final game in 1978, um, God, I can't, I'm not going to remember the stat line, but he scored something along the lines of like 20 points, and I think he had eight assists. And you just watched him play. He was like 37 years old, I think, at that point. And you're looking at me like, this dude can keep playing for at least three more years. But he decided, like, I just this is just time for me to quit. Like, he just can't play anymore. I just didn't want to play anymore. Yeah, and and he was such, um, I mean, a really great, versatile, um, you kind of kind of do everything type player. Like, I I, I kind of feel like a, a little bit he he was there was a version of Scottie Pippen as far as just kind of like the intense defense and as far as kind of the versatility and, and, and kind of some of the same attributes, he did obviously didn't have the same size and, you know, you're kind of considering different generation, but I, I sort of, that's always kind of how I've thought of Havlicek sort of studying him and seeing him a little bit. Actually, uh, this is great. Like on YouTube, um, I found this old video of like Reggie Jackson, the baseball player and uh, John Havlicek oh, yeah. like doing an interview. Yeah. And Havlicek like was talking to him and had, uh, Reggie Jackson was just like, man, how do you always just keep running around all the time? And Havlicek told him, like, the doctors took an x-ray of his lungs one time, and they had to, uh, like, have two x-ray sheets because, like, his lungs were so big. And Havlicek was like, oh, I guess that's why I have so much stamina. <laughs> like, his lungs are bigger than normal, Yes, which I... makes complete sense. That's why he never got tired. Like, he just breathed in more oxygen. and could just keep running more than other people, um, you know, which might be an unfair advantage, but, well, that's what nature gave him. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, that explains it all. Yeah, I, I you know, I, uh, I, I believe if I recall correctly, Havlicek has a wonderful '70s fur coat on in that. Yes, uh, he does. Yes, <laughs> yes. So that's uh, that, that, that's good times. Um, uh, how about Casey Jones? He was uh, a guy that Russell um, studied uh, basketball a lot with her. They had a lot of conversations when they were at the University of San Francisco together, sort of um, kind of you know, bouncing ideas off each other about the game and how to play it and, and, and different things, really kind of instrumental in Russell's uh, development in college and, and obviously his progression into the pros. They reunited a couple years into uh, Russell's career. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Russell... Did, did the Olympics, then went to the NBA. Uh, Casey Jones, I believe, went to the military for a couple of years. So that's why he was delayed. Um, if I remember right, I'm getting a little hazy. I know Sam Jones. Uh, did that is correct, yes. Okay, all right, great. I was hoping I wouldn't get them confused. They both did military service then. Um, yeah, when, when he did arrive, uh, Casey was, uh, you know, it was good that Russell had him. Like, like you're talking about, like they had the camaraderie, like the connection going back to their college days. So that was, that was kind of like Russell's, like, you know, right-hand man out there on the court defensively. Um, and Casey was was a badass defender in his own right. So he would harass the point guards. And he could make the gamble when necessary. But he you know, he could funnel the player perfectly to where Russell was was going to be at. Um, so no doubt that was great to have, for Russell to have, like, you know, one of his best friends, like his, as I said, the right-hand man for him on defense out there with him. Um, and also he was a good replacement for Bob Cousy, too, because Cousy – uh, when he was getting older, like Casey could come out there and like, you know, take the tough defensive assignment when necessary. Cause Kuzi, 
God bless him. Just wasn't a good <laughs> defender. Uh, but Casey, like, provided, like, that that right mix-up in the backcourt when they needed to get a defensive presence. They could throw him out there, and they could have that problem solved uh, once he showed up in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, how about uh, – speaking of Kuzi, um, yeah. he, he and uh, Russell, um, they, they sort of – I mean, they got along fine, but there was not necessarily a particular closeness between the two until until after their playing careers. Um you um and part of that is that obviously Kuzi was the star um it re- really probably the most celebrated NBA most famous NBA player during you know the 50s until Russell gets there and then you know Kuzi still has that acclaim um that acceptance with um most fans Russell is recognized as the um as the superstar sort of in the transition as Kuzi is getting older and you know Russell's value is clear that obviously would even after Kuzi left that would increase even more but um you know even though there was a little bit of natural tension maybe between the two because of the um both were superstars in their own right. They didn't let that get in the way of their success as a team. And, um, you know, another reason why their chemistry was so strong. Yeah. Like, and I think Russell's, um, I, I guess, um, I don't know, trepidation or hostility. I, I think that might be too strong of a word. Uh, but that was all toward kind of the, the perception laid upon Kuzi, like, I don't think he ever had a problem with Kuzi personally. I think he kind of saw the situation that was going on was like, you know, this is clearly some like, you know, some, some racism going on and uh, like parochialism too, where you have the, the, the white guard from like, he Kuzi went to college at Holy Cross. So went to college just outside of Boston and had been there for so long. Like he's clearly, as you said, like the star of the NBA, the most famous basketball player when Russell joins the NBA but Kuzi won MVP in 57, but then Russell won MVP in 58. So it became quite clear quite fast that, you know, Russell was the best player on the team. But Russell could never get that acceptance from the general Boston fan or the general love that Kuzi would always get. So that's something that I think he held against Kuzi, obviously. Like, I, Russell's a really smart guy. It's like, he's not dumb enough to hold it against Kuzi that people are giving him a claim and not Russell. But, sure. um, but that's what the situation was. So I think that's one of the grudges that Russell held against Boston for so long and why maybe he wasn't as warm with Kuzi as he, as he uh, kind of grew to be after they had retired. Uh, but they were a great combo, though. Like um, These are some of the other stats I dug up on Kuzi. Um, you know, he's kind of a guy that kind of gets put down as like the, not in a bad way, but like put down as simply the guy who made great passes, flashy, who's the hardwood, the Houdini of the hardwood. But he was also a really good scorer. Didn't have a great field goal percentage. So let's go no. back to the context. Yeah. Um, his field goal percentage was below average uh, for the period. Like, it, it wasn't the worst, but it was below average for the period. But he was an excellent free throw shooter. So he would get fouled a lot. And he would drain the free throws. Um, in fact, like a couple of days ago was the anniversary for the game where he made 30 free throws in the playoffs. Like, he was 30 for 32 from the free throw line. Uh, so this guy would nail the free throws. And he uh, finished first in assists eight straight years, but also finished second in points per game two of those seasons. So imagine today a player that not only led the NBA in assists, but then was second in points scored in the same season. Yeah. Um, so it, that kind of shows you the caliber of offensive production that Kuzi was capable of and passing to his teammates, but also being able to take the ball himself and score. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, and and it's it, he's a little bit of a hard guy to judge in in the context of uh, today's game because obviously what guards do, yeah. what guards did then, what guards do now is uh, incredibly different, and he. Um, you know, was one of the real forerunners of the of being able to you know handle the ball and and and, and pass the ball in flashy ways. I mean, he was one of the first guys doing uh, a lot of the fancy uh, passes and such. So, um, yeah. but but and obviously, also, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, but a lot of what guards do today is you know it's a, a lineage back to Kuzi. Like when you think of you know how Russell Russell Westbrook uh, obviously does it in a in many ways a much different way than Kuzi did it but in its essence it's a lot of what Kuzi did where Russell Westbrook has that that threat to to attack the basket or pass to a teammate like Russell's averaging over 20 points over 10 assists this year uh Kuzi was the, the parallel of that in his era where like there had never been a point guard who had been able to well period no point guard ever had that many assists in a game right or average for a season excuse me mm-hmm. Uh, but also the amount of points Kuzi scored, like that was unheard of for a point guard to go out there and get, you know, over 20 points a game. Very few players in the early and mid 50s were scoring 20 plus points a game. But Kuzi was out there doing that in addition to getting eight plus assists a game. So uh, I, I think we kind of just relegate him to be like the the marvelous, fantastic passer, which he certainly was. And he had sure. like you talked about Hondo's, you know, abnormally large lungs. Well, Kuzi had the abnormally large eyes which uh, gave him, like, this huge peripheral vision. So there's a reason why. And also he had these huge hands. So that's why he was able to make these, like, behind-the-back passes and dribbles that other players couldn't because he had the vision that other players didn't, but also had the huge hands to complete the moves. So uh, he's, he's a physical freak in his own time and also uh, a groundbreaker and a trailblazer in how he could score and pass the ball at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and one of uh... – kind of the one of the forerunners of the uh the modern idea of the sixth man is uh is frank ramsey oh yeah oh frank yeah he was actually heartbroken when uh cliff hagan got traded because uh, they he went to kentucky so he and cliff hagan were both college teammates in kentucky so he was all excited that cliff hagan who had been drafted by boston was finally going to join the celtics in 56 but then he got traded to the st louis hawks for bill russell so um so Frank Ramsey at first was kind of bummed out about that, but then like when he saw that Bill Russell was who they got, like when he realized that what they got was him, then he, like he was all on board with it. But yeah. Um, but yeah, he was a great six man. Uh, he had some huge game sixes and game sevens, like a lot of these guys did. Um, but yeah, he forerunner. Like I can't like I may be wrong. I might not have done enough research, but I can't think of another player uh, to that point who would come off the bench purely for that you know, that specified purpose of just being out there scoring 15 to 16, 17 points and, you know, 25, 28 minutes. And that's all you're asked to do. But he also, unfortunately, was the forerunner. Well, not forerunner. He was just one of the best at it. Uh, He was a flopper, Frank Ramsey. (laughs) That's right. He was a a pretty good defender, but also would flop whenever the the moment suited him. So um, He's probably the godfather of flopping in the NBA. So uh, right. Anderson Varejao and Vladi Divac, they, they owe him royalty checks. Uh, they do. Yeah, there's a uh, a pretty infamous Sports Illustrated article from like 62-ish um, where he basically like gives like all the trips, tricks of the trade um, yep. in flopping, which definitely yeah, kind of embarrassed the league and uh, led, to, led to some changes in how fouls were called against him toward the uh, end of his career. But um, – 
but yeah, he was definitely uh, an important, definitely, you know, a little bit uh, down the list of guys who were important to the team, but definitely was, you know, he, he was, you know, I believe uh, five or six of those championships that belonged to him. So it was, yeah. you know, a really important player in those early Celtics teams. And I think we'll close with um, with, with Bill Sharman, uh, one yeah. of the um, – we've talked a little bit about Bill before, but um, uh, really a, a forerunner in terms of uh, conditioning and um, – and, and just the ability to shoot effectively both from the field and from the line. He had a really high shooting percentage for his time, um, sort of understood, you know, the value of taking uh, good shots and just was a guy who just ran around the court tirelessly looking for a uh, looking for an open shot and uh, made a lot of them. Yeah, and this is a guy I neglected to mention earlier who was another great defender that they had on the perimeter. So, um like in the pre-Russell Celtics, uh, Bill Sharman was probably their best defensive player, um, which unfortunately when you have Bob Cousy and Ed McCauley as your other big players, they neither one of them can play a lick of defense. That's a problem. Uh, but Bill, a great defender, as you were talking already, a uh, great shooter, uh, one of the first players to shoot 90% from the free throw line. Uh, yeah, his career free throw percentage is 88%. So um that's the ice cooler right there in the game get the ball to bill Sharman. they foul him he's nailing all the free throws um that's something should have mentioned earlier too with their offense like they had some pretty good free throw shooters on their team too so that would help kind of make up for the poor field goal percentage um but yeah Sharman. now getting back to him like great shooter great free throw shooting um also one of the standout teammates in the nba um this is like the pre-Celtics when he played with the Washington Capitals, but it's still a good story to relate. Kind of shows you how his attitude was. Uh, was when uh, Earl Lloyd, who was like the he was the first black player to play in an NBA game. Uh, he and Earl Lloyd were on the Washington Capitals, and uh, they would have practice uh, here in D.C. Well, I'm in D.C., so like uh, here in D.C., they would have practice here. Um, and Bill, and this is like 1950, so it's still segregation era. And Bill Sharman would give Earl Lloyd a ride every day from the same spot to their practice facility and didn't give him a ride home afterwards. So talking about this white player driving a black guy through a segregated city together um, to practice, then would drive to do home. So I think that says a lot about Bill Sharman. Like he was a guy that was out there looking out for, looking out for his teammates, wasn't trying to judge nobody on all this other, other crap uh, that they didn't need to be judged on. Um, and so I stand up dude. And then when he became a coach, always held his players accountable, uh, had those great conditioning ideas. Um, he would try to tell his teammates about it in Boston when he was a player. Some of them, like Tom Heinsohn, really didn't listen to him, but he was always out there to give them tips, uh, always did his running regimen. Uh, it's a great story how his wife would, like, drive the car right behind him as he would run up and down the neighborhood. Um, but, yeah, fitness nut, great teammate, uh, great defender, great shooter. I absolutely love Bill Sharman. Uh, was a great dude up until the end of his life. Uh, really fantastic, fantastic person. Yeah, based on everything I've read about him, I'd definitely get the uh, get the same vibe. Like imagining, I, there's some descriptions of kind of the way that he played. I, I sort of just in my head imagine um, a little bit of like a Ray Allen style of just yeah. running around the court and you know fighting through the screen or you know. Ever, getting the screens is his defender trying to fight through those screens and just getting that open down. Obviously without a three pointer, it looks very different, but it's still, you know, it's still basketball. It's still a lot of the same philosophies. They're still looking for open shots even then. So, yeah. And you say fighting through the screens, he would literally fight people too. He was probably yes. the biggest fighter. That's the right. Great yes. teammate, but also he got a lot of fisticuffs, but yes. it was all on the court. He would not fight anybody off the court. Yeah. Sweetheart off the court. Um, 
so looking at um uh, before we close i just want to look at sort of the the which celtics team was the uh, the the best of the 11 champions and i'll look at, look at the numbers first and then we you know if we feel like there's a, a different team that we should choose then we can definitely uh talk about that but um looking at the numbers it's sort of a toss-up between 60 and 62 in 60 they led all the uh th- that was the highest year they had in win percentage they were the, the second best srs and a a ridiculous, a, a plus eight, five defensive rating over the league average. Um, in 62, they led, um, they had the best of the best SRS of any of those teams. They were third in win percentage. Um, also the 63 team was the most uh, dominant defensive team compared with the rest of the league, but also the worst offense of the Celtics dynasty. Uh, the 65 team on the other hand had the best offense, but the second worst defense, although still, um, clearly ahead of the league And 65 was probably like the last year they were really like a dominant regular season team compared to the rest of the league. After that, the, the Sixers kind of rose up and, and, and exceeded them for a couple of years, even though it was back and forth in the playoffs. Yeah, I, I've thought about this question a lot, and I hate to dodge the question, but I'm going to have to dodge the question. Um, I never can't pick a good – or I can't pick the best like Celtics team. Yeah. Um, I can kind of eliminate the ones that aren't the best. Um, I think like the, the 68 and 69 teams, I think we can safely like exclude them as among the best ones. Uh, they still got the temp- championship, obviously, but uh, I don't think those were the best teams they fielded. Um, but yeah, I, I really can't pick. Like, if, if you force me, I would say the '62 team, only because they apparently, in my mind, they had they had the hardest road in capturing the championship. So, if they beat the two hardest teams I think they ever faced that postseason and got the championship, then I think overall they were probably the best Celtics team that they put forward. Or but maybe another year they didn't have a hard time because they had the best team. They just swept everybody out the playoffs. I don't know. Um, but if I had to choose, I guess I would go with 62. Yeah. I, I was going to go with 63. That's the first year for Havlicek. Um, yeah. And Kuzi's still on the team. Hyneton's still on the team. They're kind of getting toward the end of the road. Um, you know, Russell's 28. Sam Jones is 29. So they're they're obviously older, but they're not quite old yet. You know, they yeah. st- they're still kind of have the youth enough youth on their side. The kind of the mix of veteran savvy, and um, I think they have maybe 10 Hall of Famers on that team. Um, oh my god! So, um, so yeah, I, that's um, I believe um, yeah, I believe that I believe there's 10 Hall of Famers on that team. Which oh well, yeah, we got Bill Russell, Sam Jones, Havlicek. Yeah, um, Seth Sanders in the Hall of Fame, right? Sanders, he is in the Hall of Fame, not as a player, but as a contributor. Oh, that's right. Yes, okay. Uh, Heinsohn, Kuzi. Casey's in. Casey's in there. Frank Ramsey, Clyde Lavella. Yeah, that's nine. Okay, nine. That's right. Okay, yeah. Oh, so. only nine Hall of Famers. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> right. Yeah. So not too bad. Um. So yeah, I you know, and honestly, any of those teams, you you, there's a lot of Hall of Famers on um on on all those teams. So there may you can maybe even pick a different one to as far as that goes. But yeah, I, I would say, I, I just kind of feel like you, you, you want to have Havlicek on that team. If you're going to, if you want to kind of pick the best, um, even though he's obviously a rookie there and, and, and not at the peak of his powers, but um, yeah, that, no, that, that would be my thought. Me. I think you can, I'm looking at the 63 squad. 
That's a hell of a team. I'm yeah. going to have to go with them. Yeah. I mean, maybe they didn't perform the best of, of all of the Celtics teams, but if, like, you had to – if you say, okay, you have to throw – you have to pick one of the teams to face off in this great, bas- you know, basketball battle, then that would probably be the one that would pick. Yeah, man. But then, you know, I'll probably look at, like, the 57 squad in five minutes, and I'll probably think they're the best one. And then <laughs> the 66 team in, like, three minutes after that, I'll think sure. that's the best one. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the trouble with 11 championship teams, man. It's right. Just, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Amazing stuff. So is there uh, anything else that, uh, that we should bring up before we go? Um, one little curious little thing. This is real quick. Sure. Uh, little thing I found, or I did research on, I was just curious as to how long did it take for Boston to, to lose 10 games every season? Ooh. Cause I like, I would read these books and it's like the Celtics always get up to a hot start and then like they, they build a huge lead and they just kind of coast the rest of the year. And it kind of pans out like the worst start they ever had was a 17 and 10 start. And that was in 1957, their first championship year. Mm-hmm. And they obviously didn't so, have Russell yet. So yeah. Yeah. Russell was missing for a lot of the mo- over most of those games. Um, so yeah, like uh, I'm just going to run through it real fast. Like 57 was 17 to 10. So this is just going year after year. Sure. So 17 and 10, then 26, uh, 26 and 10, 23 and 10, 32 and 10, 23 and 10, 38 and 10, Ooh. 24 and 10, 32, 10, 46 and 10. Ooh. So maybe that 1965 squad is the best one. Yeah, that's a good one too. And 10. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. Then 24 and 10, 28, 10, 25, 10, 20, 10. So you kind of see how they kind of start sliding back at the end of it. But yeah, but yeah, that it was, it was true. They kind of blew out to see these huge record leads and they just kind of were able to coast to the, to the finish line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so. absolutely. Yeah, up until the you know the last couple of years there, where they um you got older and slower, they still um uh, um you know they yeah they saw those fast starts all those years. So yeah, they were good. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's our conclusion. The, the Celtics were good. <laughs> so to summarize, yes, they were really good. <laughs> Well, Curtis, thanks so much for um, uh, for for joining the show. We uh, always appreciate it. It's always a, a pleasure. I always learn something. So that's uh, so so. Thanks, thanks so much. Is there um, anything that you want to uh, specifically uh, let our listeners know about? Uh, oh well, like two things. Number one, uh, well, I guess by the time this gets posted, like this already have happened. But I got a really good article. I haven't written it yet, but I assume it's going to be great once I write it. Um, it's going to be about Wilt Chamberlain and the time he scored zero points in a game. Ooh. Yeah. It's like uh, it was the second to last game of his career in the regular season. So uh, it's going to be a really good avenue to kind of talk about how his game changed as he got older. But there's a game where he took zero shots, scored zero points. Um, and then also, like, uh, I got admitted to a Ph.D. history program. So I'd be like official, like, doctor in history, like, in five years. That's so, awesome. Yeah. We, I know. Uh, I can officially Dr. Pro Hoops history. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. We'll have, to, we'll have to market that one. You know, uh, make sure you get the – make sure you get the, all the uh, you know, the trademarks in uh, so no one else can take that. So Do- know, Dr. Man. Pro Hoops history, yes. <laughs> yep. No one else can claim it. So, yep, that, that's my stuff out there. Though. Awesome. Well, well, that's uh, well, well, that's great as always. And um, – so yeah, uh, Rich and I are each getting married, not to each other, um, but we're both getting married in the first That's week of April. Now, so this is good. So, what's that? I said it's legal now, though. It is. It's true. It's true. <laughs> so, um, so we'll have shows during that time, but uh, but we will not be around it for that time. But we'll uh, be back. Uh, hopefully, there will not be uh, more than a week of interruption in uh, shows as uh, as we move through that. So. 
Uh, that's exciting in, in uh, our lives. So, um, yeah, well, congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, excited, of course. So uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, checking us out. You can uh, find us at uh, harvardparoxysm.com. We are on Twitter and Facebook at uh, Over and Back uh, NBA. Uh, you can find Over and Back on uh, iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to uh, leave us a uh, rating or review, that would be awesome. We prefer a good one, but, you know, be honest. We don't want you to lie to yourselves. Um, so until next time, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.